This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Live and local from the 1037 The Game Studios in Upper Lafayette, this is Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game. Streaming live at 1037thegame.com and on the free 1037 The Game mobile app. It's Saturday. Time to take a walk on the wild side. Get your Saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous CD. Do you know who I am? I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. On 1037, the game. Hey, welcome everyone to another edition of Under the Dome with CD. Right here on 1037 The Game, 1037thegame.com. It's a Saturday. Appreciate you listening in. And hopefully you have a terrific Saturday. More importantly, you make it a good one. As we're coming to you live from the beautiful First South Farm Credit Studios. And as always, the Twin Peaks hotline is wide open. 337-706-0111. Appreciate you listening in. However you're doing, so be it through 1037 The Game. 1037thegame.com, the free mobile app. Amazon Alexa, Google Home. And, yeah, you know, definitely, I hope you're enjoying yourself on the Saturday, whether you're drinking that second cup of coffee or popping that first top on a Saturday. Hopefully you're enjoying the show so far. And we got a great one ready for you. Didn't win the billion dollars. I think somebody in Michigan won it. Hopefully they can pay Dan Campbell's salary and then some, and they're not biting kneecaps off over in that area. But, you know, I'm absolutely loving the fact that it's a Saturday. It's Fight day. It is the most wonderful, one of the most wonderful days of the year. It is whenever it's a fight day involving a Louisiana product in Lafayette, Louisiana's own Dustin the Diamond Poirier in the main event of UFC 257. You know it's a good one. You know it's a fantabulous edition of Under the Dome with CD. And we got a stack lineup, but trust me, if you want to call in, the Twin Peaks hotline is open. 337 706 0111. And, of course, we start off the show the same way each and every Saturday by getting down to brass tacks of what's causing all this and why, you know, everything that I want to talk about is definitely going to be starting off and set off on the right terms with your Saturday Sports Sermon. The famous CD is on his soapbox to start your Saturday. It's time for your Saturday Sports Sermon. They say in the world of sports, there's five stages of grief. It's the, I mean, obviously it's the same as any other situation. And after Sunday's loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I went through all five of those stages. And I'm coming out to you today, live from the First South Farm Credit Studios. Going through all those phases, and now I started to think about the season as a whole. And realize how this was a damn near Herculean effort for the Saints defense. Especially in the second half of the season, and especially with Drew Brees not able to be able to throw like he used to. I was looking at the game log last night for Drew Brees in this 2020 season. He had a performance that probably was one of the worst of his career especially if you look at attempted all these air yards and stuff like that, it was god-awful, probably one of the worst that he's ever had. And as a New Orleans Saint, 
41-year-old Brees had his worst year ever. 2,942 yards, the least amount of yards he's thrown at a 24-6 touchdown interception ratio. Yes, the completion percentage was still relatively close to where he typically kind of lands in that spectrum. But brother, without a doubt, he held this team down and not for some epic defense, defensive performances against teams like Tampa Bay in the regular season. Teams like a San Francisco 49ers. Like they had a stretch where they didn't allow a touchdown for almost like three three games. That was all the defensive stuff. And look at most of those losses. Outside of the Minnesota game, whenever you allowed 30 points, you lost the ball game because you couldn't have, because Drew Brees could not carry this team to the heights that we've seen in the past. Typically, a Drew Brees team could probably put up 30 points with their eyes closed. This was not the same Brees team before or after that injury, before those rib injuries. Taysom Hill did a bang-up job. And I'm a guy who has always lambasted Taysom Hill for being more of this, you know, gimmicky quarterback. And I'll save him for later. But I'm going to say something. It may be sacrilege to a lot of Saints fans out there. And if you disagree with me, after I'm done with the sermon, the Twin Peaks hotline is open, 337-706-0111. But I think Brees should have retired after the 2018 season. It's controversial, but think about it. That was the moment. Everything was set up to perfection. Two years ago, we saw Drew Brees lead this team to previously unseen heights it looked like they were about to do the same thing they did just nine years prior and make it back to the super bowl it didn't happen and yes there's the black cloud that was the controversy in the Noah no call but let's be honest breeze wanted to come back to chase that second ring kept chasing it and injuries happened and everything else he wasn't the same guy after that thumb injury. You know, the bumps and bruises of a regular season likely affected him a lot more than it did about five or six years ago. And a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that, you know, those 2014 to 17 years, the offensive line was dog trash. And we all saw it. It was dog meat. And Breeze just kept getting bumped around. Apparently, Brittany Breeze let out a passionate post talking about the injuries that he dealt with, talking about all those things that he dealt with and said he a torn ra- 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 rotator cuff, injuring half of his ribs and probably some more that we don't know about. Who knows? Maybe he has like 50 ribs and he only broke like 10% of them. I don't know. But the fact that he went through all this stuff in regular season, it deserves to be applauded. But at the same time, I feel like he overstayed his welcome. I'm not throwing all the blame on Breeze for last Sunday's loss because there's a lot of people to blame for that. Jared Cook, definitely one of the big culprits in that. But this rant isn't about the loss. It's what's to come now in the aftermath, folks. And it ain't pretty. Like Game of Thrones, to me, I think winter is coming. Breeze likely can announce he'll hang up the cleats. That's $22 million in dead money. More likely than not, the Saints are going to have $100 million over the salary cap in 2021. And that's presuming the salary cap will be at the floor of $175 million. I think it's $109 million over right here, right now. That is insane. And we talk about the 
the Lumisnomics of the world. This is going to be the ultimate test of that. Because there's no way they can bring everyone back. And more importantly, they better not bring Jared Cook. Winter is coming for the New Orleans Saints. And I have a bad feeling about the next few years post-Breeze. And at the end of the day, it's not. I repeat, not about the future quarterback in the perspective of the entire team as a whole. Because you've just broken off Alvin Kamara. You broke off Andrews Pete. You've broken off Michael Thomas. You've broken off three guys with a lot of money. Cam Jordan, you've broken him off. you got to try and re-sign Ryan Ramchick, probably one of the best offensive linemen you have that could very well become a free agent before long. You've got to get Marshawn Lattimore to come back. You've got to be able to figure out a way to make sure everybody's happy. Because if you don't, that precipitous, that downfall of the Saints' dynasty, if you even want to call it that, the way they've been able to hold serve over this world of the NFL and the NFC South, more importantly, that can come to a very quick end. And I'll say this, I hope Winston is the guy for this team. They don't have to try out another pet project getting somebody in the offseason like a Cam Newton, like a, you know, Carson Wentz, fill in the blank, any like other quarterback that really hasn't shown much. This isn't a finishing school. This isn't a developmental league type team where you can just keep plucking guys from second-tier programs, second-tier franchises. You're not going to get Blake Bortles over in New Orleans. They better not get Cam Newton. I'll, I'll add that in there as well because I had my I had my kind of things about Winston, but I wound up giving him a chance. I wound up giving him an honest-to-God chance despite the fact that he is past transgressions. And I've been a big anti-Winston guy, but I think now I'm starting to say, like, give him the chance over Taysom Hill. Because I think Taysom Hill is already that pet project they have, and he should just – Stay as a jack of all trades to me with those with this Saints franchise. He has to stay that way, and if he doesn't like it, you know, send him somewhere else, send him off, and get something worthwhile out of it. That's the big thing, you know, because if we don't see Winston be the starting quarterback, we're going to see your boy Sean Payton die on that hill. He'll either strive or die off of his proverbial sword. He'll, and that's where I'm at because. Sean Payton continues to be the guy that wants to make himself the smartest guy in the room. He wants to be the guy that says, hey, look at me. I made that idea. I made that work. Spoilers, this is going to be the worst case scenario if Taysom Hill is the starting quarterback in 2021 because you take away what makes this offense different, what makes this offense a little bit harder to scout because you don't know at any given play where Taysom Hill is going to wind up. But if you make him the starting quarterback, you take, you can't take the queen in chess and make it into a king. The queen stay the queen. That's the big problem. Because if you have somebody like Taysom Hill who can be the queen in a sense of chess, where it can move any different direction it wants to, and it, in any, any way it pleases, and you turn into a king, we're going to go this far, it doesn't work. That's how I think of Taysom Hill if we're going to go chess, not checkers. How about that for 2021? I'm bringing up chess when I'm talking about football. But I think that's where we're at. This offseason is the most crucial in terms of riding the ship and finding their identity after Drew Brees. Because Brees is done in my book and everybody else's book. Either Peyton can prove he still has some tricks up his sleeve or we'll start seeing the Saints dip back down into the doldrums of the NFC South. 
And they might just be in the next five to six years like Lewis's precious New Orleans Pelicans and be irrelevant in the conversation. The Pelicans are dead last in the Western Conference. They're probably bound for a lottery for the next few years. They're probably going to have to get rid of a lot of guys and not be able to retain anybody in the long-term future for that Pelicans franchise. The Saints have to prove that in the next 18 months, they've got something that's sustainable for in the event that they want to have the future at quarterback be Taysom Hill, James Winston, or if the Winston situation doesn't work out, you can then say, hey, come over here. Look at what we got. We got Michael Thomas. We got Alvin Kamara. We got all these great talents. Here's what you got to work with. Hey, you can be a probably mediocre quarterback at best and probably have a 10-6, and 11-5 record and get a playoff spot. And an NFC South that, for the most part, is pretty underwhelming. Like, the NFC South, after Tom Brady inevitably retires, and after, you know, Matt Ryan finally decides to fade away and classify himself as obsolete, this is where we're at. It won't be a precipitous fall for the Saints. I think they can still be a contender in the NFC South, but there will be some telling signs in the next 18 months. Wait for the draft. Wait for free agency and see how things go. See where people go. See how they cut people. Who's the most expendable guys on that Saints roster? I think the most expendable guy in my book, I've got to get rid of Jericho. He is the guy that I need to get rid of right now, today. But we'll see what happens after that. That's the biggest thing. Also trying to figure out how to organize everything. Because the Lumisnomics aren't great. The optics aren't great for all this. So hopefully things can get better from that perspective. All right, it's on the Dome with CD, and we got a great show for you today. Three guests on tap for you today. We got John Eric Polite, MyMMANews.com. We'll talk to him at 1130 about, you guessed it, UFC 257. We're going to talk about Poirier McGregor, too. We usually have this guy at 1230, but we had to bump him up. You know, things happen and prearrange things. 12 o'clock, Ross Jackson. All Saints considered Locked on Saints, excuse me, Canal Street Chronicles and Locked on Saints podcast. I hadn't done that in a while. But Ross Jackson going to be joining the program at straight up 12 o'clock. Talk about the future of the New Orleans Saints. And then 1230, we're going to try to figure out what the hell is going on in Houston with those Texans and potentially hiring Josh McCown as a head coach when you could have had Eric Bieniemy. I still don't understand why Eric Bieniemy hasn't been hired as a head coach yet. I'm not here to try and break this down like a fraction, Jack, but I'm definitely questioning my sanity hearing the phrase Josh McCown, Jim Caldwell, head coach, while Eric Bieniemy, more likely than not in 2021, is still going to be a head coach. It's mind-boggling to me, and I'm going to get some questions, and I'm going to hopefully get some answers as to why the hell this – Texans franchise is awful. I think a lot of it has to do with him and Jack Easterby and how much of a jackass he's been over the last few months. But we'll take a quick timeout, come back, got some news about the Astros, and more right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. 
CD may be considered world famous, but he still goes out and eats a shrimp po' boy just like the rest of us. Just don't talk to him while he's eating. Lay off me, I'm starving. Now back to Under the Dome on 1037 The Game, Acadiana's sports station. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. Hopefully you have a great Saturday. Coming to you live, as always, from the First South Farm Credit Studios. The Twin Peaks Hotline open for a little bit. We got John Eric Poli coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Got some time to take a few calls if you want to react to me saying the Saints and the way things are going with this franchise. What's up with that and so much more. But before I get to some Astros news, I just saw pop up on the timeline. Let's talk about what's going on right now. And that's that you can win a new 2021 Ford Bronco by just spending 20 bucks. Yep, that's right. About 20 bucks. I'd say, you know, probably could use that money, you know, get some food. But you know what? You can enter in for a chance to win a 2021 Ford Bronco right now. It's the hottest vehicle on the market at BroncoRaffle.com. Buy a raffle ticket today. Ticket sales benefit a great cause. That is nonprofit Catholic Radio. And the drawing will be held on May 15th. But, folks, tickets are limited. Once again, you buy your tickets right now at BroncoRaffle.com or at the Delta Media Studios. So buy a raffle ticket today to win a brand-new 2021 Ford Bronco. And it's presented by the good folks at Hub City Ford. Meanwhile, the Houston Astros just made a trade. This just came out like moments ago. And this is coming from Chandler Rome. Brian McTaggart just put out something, a little quick link out about Luke Berryhill, a minor league catcher acquired by the Astros in a trade to Lewis's Cincinnati Reds, if I'm not mistaken. Let me double check that. Go ahead. So that happens when I have like multiple tabs open. I got to kind of run around and get to each and every little post. But CNL Perez is traded to the yeah, Cincinnati Reds or minor league catcher Luke Berryhill. Interesting choice. He was picked out of the 13th round of the 2019 draft. He comes from South Carolina. But more importantly, this opens up a 40-man spot for Michael Brantley. Michael Brantley signed a two-year deal to remain with the franchise earlier this week after reports came out. There's a lot of rumor in your window about him going to the Toronto Blue Jays, and it didn't happen. And I mentioned it during Ben Show earlier this week that getting him back, it felt almost like, if you've ever seen the episode of Seinfeld where it's, you know, like Jerry always is even Steven. Like, he'll lose a gig, but then get another one like right after. Like, he can always break even. To a certain extent, the Astros broke even because they could have lost both of these guys and lost a lot of power, lost a lot of pop in that lineup. You you lost your biggest pop in George Springer. George Springer, without a doubt, is probably the guy that's changing the way Major League Baseball teams are looking at kind of hitting. I think they is at changing how people are viewing the lineup. When I see this franchise... There's going to be something going on. I can't wait to see what's going to be moving in the not-too-distant future. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this whole thing is going to go and how this James Click era is going to go so far. Because he's 
made some moves with the Reds almost exclusively, getting rid of Brooks Raley, Brandon Bailey, getting them for a player to be named later, Cash, and then now Perez for Luke Berryhill. I'm intrigued to see how that whole thing's going to go. But more importantly, I think I'm more intrigued to see what the future is going to be like without, you know, George Springer, how this lineup shakes out. That's what I'm looking forward to talking at 1230. I'm obviously going to talk a lot about the Texans and what's going on with their head coaching, the front office being an absolute bleep show, and then some with Jack Easterby being the invisible hand, which, by the way, we put a poll question up on at Under the Dome CD. You can check us out on Twitter at Under the Dome CD. Also check out me at Clint Domingue, C-L-I-N-T-D-O-M-I-N-G-U-E. That's where you get the main stuff. This is more just show content for Under the Dome CD on Twitter. And I mentioned, are Houston sports forever cursed? Put three options up. Yes, not forever. Blame Jack Easterby. Because I think Jack Easterby is that guy that's the invisible hand ruining the Houston Texans. And, you know, me and Ben got into, I wouldn't say an argument, but I'd say we definitely disagreed on some stuff. When it comes to the Josh McCown news, I think Josh McCown could be a good head coach. I think he could be good. But at the same time, it's it, I feel like not having you know a guy that I think having a guy that Deshaun Watson knows doesn't necessarily solve all the problems because I'm sure there's no way that they are absolutely just discussing this entire thing right now and saying hey let's go ahead and get this guy and bring in Jim Caldwell as almost a package deal. Because that's the way it's phrased in my head, that the reports are Jim Caldwell and Josh McCown are being interviewed. The plan is to hire Josh McCown and have a head coach underneath him to kind of lead him along. Because, again, he's going from a player to a coach almost instantaneously. It's a little bit different of a sport to do that than, say, basketball. I think basketball is the only sport I've really seen be able to have a player coach transition almost immediately. Do I think he could do a good job? Yes. But I think there were more qualified guys in terms of the long-term success, the long-term sustainability of this franchise. Because right here, right now, it feels like an absolute mess with the sport of professional football in the state of Texas. The Dallas Cowboys, there's so much uncertainty with that whether or not this team can actually get their head out of their own backside. But when it comes to the Houston Texans, you've got a general manager that was largely hired to keep Jack Easterby around, and Cal McNair looks like an absolute idiot. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on with with that franchise, and I'm wanting to see this thing kind of be destroyed and burnt to the ground so they can rebuild it again. Because the Houston Texans need a complete and utter like overhaul, in my mind. But again, we're going to have Chris Gordy on at about, let's say, 1230. We usually have Ross Jackson in that spot. He told me he's catching a flight around that time, so we're going to go ahead and punt him over to straight at 12 o'clock. That's how, that's how flexible I've been able to pull this stuff off in terms of getting guests on the program, because I wanted to have my final conversation with Ross until, you know, once we get closer to free agency, the NFL draft, and then once we get into training camp, I'm having one every week until the end of the season again, which I have a feeling maybe at week 17. That's at least what I'm eyeing from my POV. But now it's time 
We'll take a quick time out. It's Under the Dome with CD right here on 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. And we're going to go ahead and talk about some UFC 257 and talk with John Eric Poli of my MMA News. Talk to him about what's going on with UFC 257. McGregor, Poirier, look at some of the undercard as well, because it's a pretty damn good card to start off 2021, and it's in Fight Island. Talk about that next right here on 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. From the octagon to the 20 by 20 squared circle and everywhere in between. The world famous CD isn't afraid of tackling any topic. Just don't expect him to get into the ring with anyone he offends. Citizen. Just bring it. Let's get back to Under the Dome. Every fight is a, is a, a chip on my shoulder. I'm trying to prove something. I'm trying to prove the work that I put in, I'm trying to make it pay off. I'm trying to put my family in a better position, and this is no different. I know what a win over Conor McGregor means in combat sports, and I know that whoever wins this fight is fighting for gold, and that's why I fight. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here at Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. Coming to you live from the first South Farm Credit Studios. Hope you have a great Saturday, and now we're going to Go from under the dome and get into the octagon with our next guest aboard the Twin Peaks Hotline. That is John Eric Poli of my MMA News. John, how's it going, brother? I'm great, my man. What an exciting day. UFC 257 going down tonight. Conor McGregor returns against Dustin Poirier. It's going to be a, a fun night of fights. I can't wait for it. It's going to be a fun night of fights, and it's definitely capping off a great last couple weeks of fights. I, I know earlier this week, I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, I woke up, and the first thing I saw was a live, honest-to-God UFC card, and that may have been one of the best mornings I've ever had. Yeah, that was a, uh, a fun one. Wednesday uh, Wednesday afternoon, yeah, the inauguration's going on. Uh, there's UFC fights going on as well. Michael Chiesa got a big win there. And I'm actually talking to Michael Chiesa on uh, Monday. The interview will air on Tuesday on MyMMA News. So uh, everyone can keep an eye out for that one because Chiesa's on a big roll here. I- I'm absolutely looking forward to it. But I think more importantly, I think we're all looking forward to this because this will be one of those like first few shows since UFC 248 that we've had non-essential event personnel, they're in attendance. You've got, relatively speaking, fans in the stands over in Abu Dhabi, which is just cool in and of itself. But how great is it that this is the first UFC pay-per-view that's going to have fans in the stands since March of last year, and it's really, really stacked when you just look up and down that card. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about time that we start getting the fans back into the arena because it just makes such a big difference. And, uh, and then we'll use football as an example. I'm a big Green Bay Packers fan. Aaron Rodgers talked about how much it made a difference to having a couple thousand people in, in Lambeau Field for a football game. And I, I'm sure that the fighters are going to feel that way, too. It's, uh, it's definitely it's iconic. And hopefully it's a step in the right direction, too, that we could start getting fans back into the crowds because there's nothing like a live UFC event, especially like Conor McGregor. They say when Conor McGregor fights, that might be the most iconic walkout in possibly all of the sports. So it's nice that we're starting to see fans get back in attendance, and hopefully we're in the right direction before you know we'll be back to that sold-out arenas again. And All right, so we, we've been through this experiment of, of no fans in the stands for UFC fights. I've had a lot of them over in Apex. They've had Fight Island. 
And I think the big question, I mean, I, we're talking about it, did you prefer the crowds there or did you prefer kind of the, the no crowds, but you got to hear some of the trainers? And you, I, I feel like that was the most interesting part of it. You, It felt like an ultimate fighter-ass thing. I feel like the sport of MMA actually was helped a lot by having no fans in the stands. I mean, I was hearing people talk about how D.C., every time he was doing commentary, people were hearing him, like, basically give him almost advice. It was almost like Daniel Cormier was almost like another ringside person. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's the interesting part with all of this, to get the nail on the head there. It's, uh, you know, they catch 22, because it is pretty cool to be able to actually hear all the punches and the kicks and the breathing and hearing the advice from the corners and, and, and hearing maybe even a little bit of trash talk, too, in the mix there. So that is the unique thing of it, but I, I don't know, man. I'm still a fan of having crowds there. It's something, there's just something about seeing a live audience go crazy with the big knockout or just getting all hyped up for a fight and, even when you're sitting there watching at home, when you you know you're dialed in and you see all the people yelling and screaming, going crazy, you kind of get the the nerves and the goosebumps. Yeah. But it's almost as if you were there. I'm just glad that the UFC didn't go the route of like the MLB or the NBA or even the WWE, where you had the piped in crowd noise. They just went straight up like dead silence to where it it just felt more real, and it may I think benefit a lot more with the no fans in the stands versus like baseball or college football to a certain extent. Oh, yeah, I, I 100% agree with that, too. And like you were saying, from those stories with Daniel Cormier offering people advice, and you hear the fighters say, yeah, I'm really glad DC said that in between rounds. I picked up on it to hearing, you know, different moments like over the summer when uh, Glover Teixeira and Anthony Smith had that moment where Glover Teixeira apologized to Anthony Smith because he was punching him, knocking his teeth out, and saying, you know, it's all part of, part of the job. Like, the little moments with things like that has just been very special, and it's it's been something that's kind of helped the UFC out, too, because those moments of pretty much gone viral a couple of them, especially that one that I just mentioned with Anthony Smith and Glover to share. And it's, it helps, you know, anything that helps the sport I'm in favor of. So I'm really glad that they did that as well. Exactly. I think we just got to support what's going on with this sport and be able to see some of these future stars. I think the, I bring up 257 being a great card up and down. We got to talk about some of the stuff in the prelims, the early prelim. What fight interests you the most out of the prelims and the earlies? So out of the three wins, I, I'm going to be slightly biased on this one. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the okay. one fight that I'm looking forward to, it's Juliana Pena versus Sarah McMahon. And the reason why I'm looking forward to that, I mean, obviously it's a great fight because it's a, a meeting between two top ten women bantamweight fighters in the world. But I went to a small state school here in Pennsylvania called Lock Haven University. Sarah McMahon's actually an alumni of that school as well. She actually, um, quick little side note here, she was a part of, uh, of a wrestling team. It wasn't really a women's wrestling team at the time, but Lock Haven had a Division One wrestling program, and she was in there working out with the guys. And the, uh, the coach at the time, Carl Poff, who I ended up having as a professor, used to tell the story. She was, like, one of the hardest-working people he's ever come across. And that experience ended up turning out great for Sarah going to Lock Haven and working out with those Division One wrestlers because she became an Olympic silver medalist in wrestling. Um, so there's a, that little side as to why I'm biased. But I think it's an interesting matchup, too, because – Juliana Pena is a great grappler. Matter of fact, people forget when she was submitted by Valentina Shevchenko, she won a round or two against Shevchenko in that fight before being submitted. Then right after that, she got pregnant. She took some time off to, um, you know, obviously going through just the pregnancy and then raising a daughter, too. But now she's back. And then recently she fought Jerrine Durandamy, one of the baddest women on the planet. She was in that fight, too. It was a three-round fight. It was 1-1 going in the last round. Uh, and then Durandamy ended up getting a submission in the final round. 
So given how great of a grappler that Pena is, that she's had, she was able to take Valentina Shevchenko down and stuff like that versus an Olympic silver medalist, should be a great grappling affair. Oh, I'm absolutely intrigued by that one as well. The other one that I think we need to bring up is the catchweight fight. That one's definitely interesting with Armand taking on Matt Frivola. That that just looks like it's going to be intriguing. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm excited for that one as well. And like you were saying, it's a great card all the way up and down. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Uh, the catchweight, too, always makes it interesting because the UFC, now Bellator, I know people don't usually like talking about the two of them, but Bellator is notorious for doing catchweights. The UFC bit of a rarity. So I, every time there's a catchweight, I kind of get intrigued because it's something a bit different. And I feel like a lot of these catchweight fights, because now with the this whole coronavirus thing going on, uh, there's been a lot more catchweight fights for the UFC because there's, there's been a lot more short notice fights. And it, I feel like every time we've seen a catchweight fight, there's been a knockout. So I don't know if there's a trend there going on, but that one might have KO written on it. If you're a fan of knockouts, keep an eye on that one. I'm looking forward to seeing this one, especially since it's been a while. I mean, we're, we're bringing up Armand. I think he absolutely is a guy that we we haven't seen a whole lot out of in the last couple of years. Only had like two two fights over the last two years. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do in this fight. Yeah. So uh, whenever you have like a layoff like that, too, it's always interesting. When I do a lot of interviews with fighters, I actually ask them about this too because uh, everyone has a different opinion on ring rust. Uh, Dominic Cruz is obviously famous for for saying that ring rust doesn't exist, but we've seen fighters where it really hurts them. So uh, yeah, I'm curious to see what's going to be like to see him get back out there and see what his take is on it because uh, you know there's something to be said for live octagon minutes. There, you know, you can do things in a practice room, but when you're actually out there under the lights in a live fight, things are a lot different than it is in the practice room. Now let's get to the main card. I think, obviously, the first fight of the night on the main card, Amanda Rebus, Marina Rodriguez, and a strawweight battle. Man, Amanda has been on a roll as of late, getting getting a win streak going. What can you say about her and how, how important this could be for her in terms of moving up in the strawweight division? Well, it's funny. I actually got to do an interview with Amanda Hebos right before uh, Christmas time. It was uh, the, the week of Christmas, if I'm not mistaken. And we talked about this matchup. And it was a little bit interesting, too, for Amanda because she's been wanting a big fight for so long. She was supposed to fight on the UFC 256 card back in December against uh, Carlos Sparza. That fight got pushed back. Then she was booked for this card against Michelle Watterson. Michelle drops out of the fight. So now Q in. Uh, Marina Rodriguez, and Amanda's just, she was saying, she's she's ready to roll. She's been wanting a fight for so long. She's finally got one. But uh, she knows that it's going to be a tough night for her. She uh, even said she spent this camp really, really, really working on her striking because Marina's uh, you know, a stand-up fighter. She's going to go in there. She's going to be wanting to throw on elbows, punches, kicks. So, um, uh, you know, Amanda's going to be ready for that. And the one thing to note, too, is Amanda for this camp finally made it back to American Top Team. Her last fight that she had back in March, she spent, because of coronavirus, she spent that whole camp down in Brazil. Now she was able to go to Florida, and we know what American Top Team does. They're one of the best gyms in the world. So Amanda's going to be ready for it, and uh, I'm excited to see what she's going to do because this is a big opportunity for her uh, coming into this fight number 10 in the rankings. Uh, Marina's number 8, so when obviously bumps uh, Marina up. And, and regardless, I mean, Marina's in a big spot too because Amanda's – becoming a star pretty much you know Amanda has a lot of a lot of fans a lot of people are on the Amanda uh he boss bandwagon so a win over Amanda for Marina puts her in a spot like hey I beat somebody that's ranked lower than with a lot of hype let's get somebody ranked in front of me and if you're Amanda the same thing like all right 
I've been waiting. Here I am. I'm number 10. I got to win against somebody in the top 10. Give me a big-time fight. So this fight has a, a, a lot on the line for whoever wins this one in the future. Speaking of the women's, he's got another great women's fight in the flyweight division with Joanne Calderwood taking on Jessica Ie. That's going to be one hell of a matchup because I, those two alone, it's just the, the name branding of those two. I'm looking forward to this flyweight matchup tonight. Yeah, same here. And, uh, you know, uh, both fighters, too, coming off a losses, so they're both going to be hungry to get back out there. And uh, one of my colleagues at my MMA News, Connor Northup, just interviewed uh, Jessica I before this fight. And one of the things I didn't even realize was going on with her, she's had some, uh, some problems with um, dealing with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, I believe she had some gallbladder problems, which is actually – led to her not being able to make weight a couple of times. So she was saying she, now that she's got things figured out, what's going on with her with her body, she knows the right foods to put in her system, and she's never felt better. She said she was going to master this weight cut, no problem. Silence of the doubters about that, and she did that. Um, so I know she's definitely very hungry for this fight, and I imagine Calderwood is too. Uh, this is, Again, same, uh, similar to the uh, uh, Marina Rodriguez-Amanda Hebos fight. They're looking at two fighters ranked right next to each other, six and seven. So uh, when you have two fighters that are ranked in the top ten like that, ranked right by one another, a win pretty much says, like, hey, I need somebody better. I need somebody higher up in the rankings. So both of those fighters in a similar boat there. And not to mention, it's a pretty good uh, pretty good stylistically uh, matchup, too. Both of those ladies are going to get after it. They're going to be throwing their hands. So that should be a fun one to watch, too. Talking right now, John Eric Poli, my MMA News. Let's look at the lightweight matchup, the penultimate fight of the night. Dan Hooker, who put together a fight of the year contender against Dustin Poirier, taking on taking on him, uh, Michael Chandler in the semi-main event. What can you say about this fight? Because I'm looking forward to it because I think Dan Hooker really showed me a lot, especially in the later rounds of that fight with Poirier back last year. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hooker, Hooker, Hooker proved in that fight that he belongs in the in the top five of the UFC uh, lightweight division. Obviously, when he beat Paul Felder, that was a close back-and-forth fight. Some people, though, were, eh, I don't know. Is he ready for the big boys at 155? He did. He proved that against Dustin Poirier. Great fight. Uh, absolute war. Fight of the year contender. So we know that he belongs. But one of the things that I want to touch on with this fight, a lot of people only follow the UFC. They don't follow MMA as a whole. They don't know Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler is the real deal. He was a champ at Bellator for such a long time. Obviously, holds a win over Eddie Alvarez and another one over, or two wins actually over Benson Henderson. They're former UFC champions. He he belongs in the UFC. Uh, it's a shame we're seeing him a little bit later on in his career. Would have liked to see him there maybe a couple of years ago, but he's here and he's ready. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that one. And again, that's that, that's an interesting match too because when I look at it, Dan Hooker standing six feet tall, Chandler comes in at five eight four-inch uh, uh, advantage towards Hooker there in the height department. The great P. Sonnen always says, though, so. the smaller guys you got to watch out for. But uh, Chandler being a great wrestler, he's an All-American out of Missouri, he's going to want to shoot in there. And we've seen Hooker land some nasty knees on guys that want to shoot in on him. So that's an interesting stylistic matchup. And actually – the guy that runs our website at MyMMA News, Eric Kowal, has this one circled as a potential fight of the night. So uh, that's going to keep your eye on as well. Now let's get to brass tags here, the main event, the Lafayette native Dustin Poirier. Last time these two faced off, and Dustin Poirier McGregor was back in 2014. Dustin Poirier barely lasted the length of an Instagram video the last time these two did face off. 
What you say about this matchup, I know you wrote a big column on MiamiNews.com, why you shouldn't sleep on Dustin Poirier. And obviously, McGregor is going to be the betting favorite after what they saw back at the last performance he had at UFC 246 where he knocked out Cowboy in about, two, in about 40 seconds. What can you say about this matchup and why you think that Poirier could wind up pulling off a pretty decent-sized upset? Yeah, so uh, in that article, too, I, I listed four reasons, and I'll, I'll kind of go through them with, with everybody here, too, because I think this fight is completely different. That fight that happened six years ago, crumble it up, throw it away. It's a whole different matchup because that first time when they fought, it was something new for Poirier. Poirier, you know, he was in the UFC. He's only, at that point, though, he fought on two main cards in the pay-per-view, not even a main event slot. He headlined one show, which he lost. Then you have Conor McGregor, who just came over from Ireland, burst it right on the scene, superstarred him right from the get-go. So now Dustin Poirier is in a spot where he was filming these commercials. And if you watch the UFC Countdown show, they really dive into this, too. So I recommend if anyone has an hour before the fight today to check that out. So they're filming different commercials. They're doing all media tours. This was all new to Dustin Poirier. He wasn't used to any of this. And then on top of it, this wasn't the McGregor we're seeing now. This is the McGregor trash-talking at its best, at its finest. It, it was a big mental thing for Poirier. That's all now behind him. Since then, Poirier's fought on the biggest stages. He's fought for championships. He won a UFC interim championship. He's headlined fight nights multiple times. He's headlined pay-per-views, not to mention that one against Habib when they first built that arena over there in Abu Dhabi, which is a sold-out crowd in hostile territory. He's seen all of it. Also, when you look at that first fight, go look at the weigh-in video for that. Poirier was this little skinny rake. God bless him, man. And just how the fact he made 145, I have no idea. And after that fight, his coach was like, all right, Dustin, that's it. You got to move up. So there he took their advice. He moved to 155. Since moving up to 155, he's completely transformed his body. When they fight tonight, Dustin Poirier will weigh more than Conor McGregor. And there's a good chance he could be close to 10 pounds more than Conor McGregor, which is a big difference because he could take a punch. We saw that against Dan Hooker. We saw it um, in his fight with uh, Max Holloway. I know Holloway's not the strongest puncher, but still there's a high volume output in that. And don't forget about Justin Gaethje. He's not guys out cold. He couldn't put Poirier away either. So Poirier's body transformation is completely different. That's going to keep an eye on. And, of course, Poirier has the stamina. We've seen it but time and time again. We don't need to, even need to spend a lot of time on that. Poirier can go five rounds, no problem. He carries the power through five rounds. So that is uh, pretty much the main things to uh, look out for in this one. And, and people are sleeping on Dustin Poirier. He's, he's sliding down there as an underdog. I don't know if that's a good move. I'm not going to go ahead and tell you, go ahead and bet your money on the underdog because, you know, Connor's a, a, a bad guy out there himself, but, I think I think the mat I think the matchmakers got this a little bit wrong. I think it should be a little bit closer, just closer to a pick 'em fight than it is for Connor being a slightly heavy favorite. All right, so one more before I let you go. We're talking about the odds. Do you think the odds are more about the fact that they believe this fight could be shorter? Because I would think in my mind that this fight, with the fact McGregor he had such a long gap between the Khabib fight a couple of years ago to what he, we saw Cowboy Cerrone where he beat him in forty seconds. I think that's the assumption, and we've heard McGregor with this prediction under a minute he's going to get the win. My question is, if this goes into the later rounds, like third, fourth round, 
it clearly favors Poirier, right? Oh, 100%. And with the matchmakers here, so usually, typically, um, whoever wins the first fight usually wins the second time around, which is why trilogies are so so rare, which is why McGregor opened up as the betting favorite. Of course, then you have McGregor mania is real thing. So as soon as Connor fights, everybody comes out of the woodwork to watch him fight. They're going to bet money on McGregor. Now you have Connor saying he's going to knock him out in 60 seconds. Now people are going to be betting these first-round knockouts as well. So that's kind of why the... The, the gap spread there in the betting line. But, uh, no, you're, you're 100% right. That's why I'm interested to see what Dustin Poirier's game plan is going to be for this fight because Dustin has said that he's not afraid to brawl with Connor. He will brawl with Connor. I don't know if that's a good move. I imagine Connor's, Connor's a fast starter regardless. I imagine Connor can come out of the gate pretty quick at him. I don't know being Connor's, you know, with his length and his ability to counter if Dustin wants to engage in a brawl early on. I, I think, though, if Poirier could, you know, keep himself composed. He can box with him, no doubt, because Poirier's boxing is legit. But if he could just not engage in that brawl, eh, the, the later this fight's going to go, it's going to favor Dustin big time. Because like I said before, Dustin has a stamina to go all five rounds. He keeps the power through all five rounds. We've seen Connor several occasions in the past that we could point out to where he's stayed it in the later rounds. So, yeah, if there's a live betting going on during this, the longer the fight goes, the more it's going to shift to Poirier, that's for sure. All right, 30 seconds, John. Winner, whoever wins this fight, what's next for him? Uh, whoever wins this fight will fight for the UFC Undisputed Lightweight Championship. Will it be against Khabib Nurmagomedov? That's to be determined. But whoever wins this fight will be one half of the upcoming Lightweight Championship fight. That's for sure. John, appreciate you coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. Enjoy the fights tonight. Thanks, man. You too. Appreciate it. I definitely will, and make sure you check out 1037thegame.com. We'll have a full recap of that, and also be sure to check out the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Be sure to check out Cajun Strong Style Podcast this Monday. We'll look back at UFC 257, give me my thoughts on that and so much more involving the sport of professional wrestling. But Cajun Strong Style will look at UFC 257. So make sure you check it out when it drops on your favorite podcast gimmicks. Just subscribe to 1037 The Game. Back after this, wrap-up hour number one, next. Under the Dome with CD is far from your ordinary sports talk show. I am the voice of the voiceless. What other show has more pop culture references than an episode of Family Guy? I just don't want to be involved in any of that mess. Now, back to the famous CD on 103.7 The Game, Acadiana's sports station. All right, going to wrap up under the dome with CD on a quick note and a bit of a sad note with Larry King passed away this morning and definitely some sad news. Passed away at the age of 87 years old, a giant of broadcasting for decades. But you might not know, he found a home in Shreveport, Louisiana for a while. In the early 70s, he worked multiple jobs, including radio broadcaster for the Shreveport Steamer football team. And when you know, his broadcast partner, would be the future voice of the LSU Tigers in Jim Hawthorne. Oh, my goodness. Can I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to go ahead and try and rip off I'm a, our guy, J.D. Jacques Doucet's gimmick. Let him keep doing that because I cannot do a Jim Hawthorne impression. But we're done with hour number one. Hour number two, going to be started off on a hot note with our guy, Ross Jackson, Locked on Saints podcast, Canal Street Chronicles. Join the program next. 
should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Live and local from the 1037 The Game Studios in Upper Lafayette, this is Acadiana's number one sports station, 1037 The Game. Streaming live at 1037thegame.com and on the free 1037 The Game mobile app. It's Saturday. It's take a walk on the wild side get your saturday started with an inside look under the dome with the world famous cd do you know who i am i don't know how to put this but i'm kind of a big deal on 1037 the game and welcome, everyone, to hour number two of Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game, 103.7 The Game dot com. Coming to you live from the first South Farm Credit Studios. Hopefully you're enjoying the show so far. You have a great one. Whether you're sipping that second cup of coffee or maybe you're sipping that or popping that first top, I should say. Maybe having some proper 12 on a fight day. We just had John Eric Poli. My MMA news talk about UFC 257, and usually we have this guy in the 12:30 slot. It feels a little weird to intro with the typical under the dome intro and have him start off this hour. So we're gonna change things up a bit. Let's let's introduce this guy right. Oh yeah, we are going over to the Twin Peaks hotline talk with our guy ross jackson locked on saints podcast and also the canal street chronicles ross what is going on my good brother hey man i'm doing well you're probably going to hear some uh, noise in the background i'm on a on a plane on my way to the senior bowl right now so you know you got me in action this week oh you're, head, you're heading over to the senior bowl man you're heading over to mobile Yep, I'm heading on my way down there now. Um, jumping on a, a flight on my way, uh, getting down to Baton Rouge actually for for uh, an evening, and then heading over to Mobile for the game. Nice well, for the practice week, I mean. Nice, nice. I, yeah, I, I knew you, you mentioned you were on a flight. I didn't realize you were actually going down to the Senior Bowl to kind of get ready for for everything going on over there. It's definitely going to be like really different too when you think about it. Yeah, it's going to be real different. I mean, you know, the media availability is going to be not the exact same as, you know, what you're used or accustomed to maybe seeing to where, you know, you have, you know, much like what you saw in the NFL throughout the rest of throughout the regular season as well, to where, you know, you're not going to have a bunch of people holding microphones in people's faces or yeah. <laughs> anything like that. So it's going to be a little bit different, um, you know, but the media is still welcome there. They're still going through with the game. And, and it's great, I mean, because you see what's going on right now with the NFL Combine, the way that it's being restructured and everything. These all-star games and the senior bowl still happening is a huge uh, benefit for these guys that are coming out of college. It's a huge benefit, and you can definitely know there's a lot of guys out there. I know at least one Cajuns player, Elijah Mitchell. He's going to be the guy. Mm-hmm. I think. I think. I, if I were to be out there, I would definitely keep an eye out on him. Oh, definitely going to be watching for him. Going to be watching for a few of the uh, LSU guys that are going to be out there as well. I'm really interested to get a look at Jacoby Stevens in action during the practice week and uh, a few of the other Tigers that are going to be out there. But, uh, yeah, Elijah Mitchell is definitely someone that's on my radar because, you know, uh, I love those uh, I love those change of pace backs, as they call them, in the NFL. And he's a, a model one of those guys coming into the league. Oh, 100%. He definitely – you bring up change of pace guys. He's a lot like – I'd say the Alvin Kamara type versus a, a fellow right. Raging Cajun in Trey Regis, who has definitely been kind of the Mark Ingram to his Alvin Kamara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit of that boom and zoom, right? <laughs> it's – it. 
it paid off quite well for that franchise. I'll say that much. Yeah, going definitely. to the going to the boom and zoom, and obviously now we're going to kind of look into the matchup itself when it comes to like what happened with the Saints this past Sunday, and mm-hmm. I. I it was just absolutely mind-blowing to look back at the stats last night when I was kind of putting together some notes for the show, and I was like, Drew Brees probably had his, had his worst game of his career in that in that divisional round. Yeah, that was a really, really rough matchup. Uh, and, I mean, honestly, it was, it was a bad – I don't want to say a bad game, but it was a challenging game all across. But certainly if you look back and reflect upon Drew Brees' time, that's not the Drew Brees that you're accustomed to seeing, particularly in big games, Sunday night games, primetime games, and things like that. But it was another, I think you could say, uh, example, maybe even for the fourth year in a row, it's where you have seen the Saints now come out flat in the playoffs over on the offensive side and not be able to overcome sort of the situations they weren't able to create for themselves early, even when they had the opportunities. You had Deontay Harris opening up this team with a, uh, a red zone possession immediately, and he brought one back. They got called back with a block and a back penalty, and then still got into a red zone possession there and came away with only six points there with an opportunity to go up 14 to zero. And then late in the game, of course, you saw the, the fumble from Jared Cook. So it, it stems a lot from the way that that offense played, and a lot of the, the, the issues that they had over on that offensive side came in a passing game. And Drew Brees is tied to all that, unfortunately. I don't think that's how we're going to remember his legacy, of course, but not the, the greatest showing for what could have been his last game in the Dome. Oh no, I don't think his legacy is going to be that game. I mean, this this isn't that right. kind of this isn't you know I'm uh, trying to think of the guy that I think you would probably know this Rams Titans Super Bowl, the guy that stretched his arm out at the end of the game and just came up one yard short. Kevin Dyson. Kevin, thank you. My brain just couldn't yeah, figure yeah, out who. Yeah. But that I mean, Kevin Dyson's legacy is that play, right? Is that play right? Exactly. I mean, to a certain extent, John Carney's like right. legacy is the Jacksonville relay play. Missed field goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's gonna. Rem- but mind you, I think John Carney's legacy is a lot more than that when it when it comes down to it. Of but course, that's that's the course. one that everybody's gonna point to as that one moment of like ineptitude. But looking at this, looking at this season as a whole, would you mm-hmm. would you mark this as a success or would this just be another like? could have been year for him? I mean, the way that I look at it is that it's a successful season that ends in disappointment. I mean, it, it, it's a fourth straight divisional championship for the first time ever within the division. It was the first team to ever sweep the entire division since the NFC South came to be in 2002. Uh, this is a team that has gone now with 10-plus wins in the last four years as well. So I, I think that there's a lot of success in the season, but unfortunately, just like those other three seasons that preceded it, it still ends in disappointment. But I wouldn't call the entire season itself a disappointment as a whole, if that makes sense. No, I got you. I got you. And I would, I would agree with that. I mean, it's another season that ends in disappointment, but it got me thinking because I was like, I felt, I felt more like just frustrated than disappointed because it mm-hmm. was just such a game. Like, you know, the, the, the Vikings game, you had the way that ended both times. The Nola no call was pure blooded anger, but I think it was just more frustration because once again, you, basically couldn't crack that glass ceiling for the fourth straight year. Yeah, yeah, and this definitely was one of those moments where, you know, you mentioned those other three playoff games, those other three playoff exits. All of those, maybe with the exception of the second Vikings game, I think the second Vikings game was a little bit more diagnosable in terms of the, the Saints being responsible for their own blunder. This one was very clear that the Saints went out and lost this game, and I think that that's part of what makes it, most frustrating. Uh, you know, I don't feel like they got outplayed. I don't feel like they got outcoached. I just feel like the mental mistakes, the lack of execution, 
the the turnovers, all those things just came and, and, and lack of communication as well in terms of one of those turnovers, the interception that was a target to um, to Alvin Kamara over the the, the theme. Uh, I think you have to look at those as being uh, things that you can look at and say, ah, that could have been better. Those are issues the Saints beat themselves, and it's tough because now you have to look to the future where you kind of have to wonder, well, how long is it going to take before they even get back to this opportunity? Talking now, Rawls Jackson, Locked on Saints podcast and Canal Street Chronicles. And one of the things I opened up the show was talking about the fact that it feels like winter is coming for the Saints, and obviously I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones in my life. But, I mean, the the allegory of winter is typically death. So right here, right now, it just feels like once Drew Brees retires, it's like how can Loomisnomics figure out how to overcome being potentially $100 over the cap and the $22 million in dead money you have with Drew Brees? I mean, I don't think the NFL has ever been able to pull off a Bobby Bonilla Day-esque deal with somebody like Brees. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to be really interesting to watch, and I think this offseason obviously is going to be one of the most intriguing across the entire NFL because this is going to be one of the first times that the salary cap has dropped from the year before. So the absolute bedrock of that is $175 million. There's conversation that may be closer to 180 which would be helpful, uh, obviously. Uh, the Saints could potentially roll over about $4 million of their salary cap from 2020 into 2021 because that was uh, money left unspent for them at the end of the season. And the rest of that just comes down to how they handle these contracts. Drew Brees can retire, but if they push off making that official until June 1st, then that ends up saving them about $25 million as opposed to the 13 and a half that it would save them if he, you know, if they just made it official immediately. So that'll be something to watch to see how they handle that. And then restructures, extensions, those things will come into play to sort of knock down the rest of that because there's a lot of wiggle room for them to do that. But then you're sort of, mortgaging and hoping the fact that, uh, you know, next year things get back to normal in the 2021 season so that it doesn't affect the salary cap in 2022. And then after that, you might see a couple of releases and cap casualties and things like that. But the Saints can essentially take it on the way that they want to. If they want to avoid sort of, you know, mass cuts and not being competitive next year, there's a model for them to do that. If they want to just bite the bullet, take the cap hit now, and then prepare themselves for the future, they're obviously able to do that as well. Talk right now, Ross Jackson, Locked on Saints, Canal Street Chronicles. And looking at everything right now, the way it's all set up, obviously, Loomisnomics will probably figure out a way to get all this in. But looking at the future of the position at quarterback, obviously there's going to be a lot of changes with free agency, potential retirements from Breeze. I think Roethlisberger likely is done. Phillip Rivers mm-hmm. is, is going to, uh, to where you're heading right now, probably getting ready to start coaching him up for spring practice. But, you know, everything – like with this free agency year is probably the most turbulent for quarterbacks. How do you see this going, and where do the Saints kind of put all their eggs in in the proverbial basket in terms of setting up the quarterback for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that the things to keep a look out uh, to, to look out at are going to be you know right now the Saints only have one quarterback under contract, and that's Jason Hill for next season. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confidence in the idea that Jameis Winston is going to be the guy, or at least is going to be present next year. But we have to remember that they still have to resign him as well, so that's going to become a, a huge part of it, and, and making sure that they're going to be able to put themselves in the best situation possible to prepare themselves for the future. There are some trade options out there. There's obviously a lot of Saints fans that are interested in the Saints trading for Deshaun Watson, which feels uh, like a long shot to me, but it's not impossible. But then another trade that they could potentially make would be for a guy like Matt Stafford, where you could see them leap up. And, you know, after they sort of protect themselves 
in free agency and get what they can in terms of quarterback and, and, and settle up their future that way. They could also look to maybe move up in the draft and try to get maybe one of the maybe second-tier, third-tier guys that they really like, you know, to try to train him up and things like that. So they have a lot of options. It's just I think that it starts first for the Saints always in-house. So Jameis Winston is the big name that I'm watching to see sort of what happens after the Drew Brees retirement. I imagine is made at some point probably after the Super Bowl. We'll see. Um, I, I, I am 100% of the assumption that he does retire. Obviously, we don't know for sure. But if he makes that announcement, then Jameis Winston is the name that I'm watching first. Exactly. Before I let you go, Ross, I know you're going down there for the Senior Bowl. With the Saints, they've got they've got a late first round pick. The big two part question: Do they trade up? And two, what do you think the Saints get with their first round pick? Yeah, I mean, I think that they will look to trade up for sure. I mean, they always do, so I would definitely watch them to do that. And then a couple of positions that I would watch out for would certainly be wide receiver, potentially offensive tackle, because there's a really great class coming in that's like either first round or wait until the third day type of situation. Uh, or maybe even linebacker if a guy uh, like uh, Nick Bolton maybe uh, ends up staying on the – or Zayden Collins out of uh, Tulsa. So these are some of the guys – that you know that are pre- that those that will be present that I'll be watching at those positions. Ross, thank you so much for coming on, my man. Be safe making your way over to Baton Rouge for the night, and the next day go to Mobile. Tell Dave I said hey, and take it easy, brother. I'll talk to you once we get closer to the free agency and draft. Will do, my friend. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Appreciate all y'all over at the studio. All right, that was Ross Jackson. Follow him on Twitter at Ross Jackson Nola. Appreciate him coming on the program like he did. And yes. I got some text in during that segment. I have never seen Game of Thrones. More because I don't have HBO, so, you know, just didn't. I've I've been able to, like, read up on stuff, but it's like, you know, okay, I get it. I understand what's going on, but I just just never watched it. Yeah, so so there's that. Again, I'm a big fan of, you know, like, like, like Marvel movies, Star Wars, stuff like that. So, like, I understand, but it's like, I'll also admit something else, too. I've never seen the Lord of the Rings movies. More because all of them are three hours long. Like, I could read the book and be done with it. It just, I don't want to say, whenever I, back in the day when I was a little bit younger, and they'd have the movie marathons on, like, TNT whenever I was in, like, community college right out of high school, I would see on, like, Sunday afternoons, like, TNT or somebody would be airing like a all day marathon of the Lord of the Rings movies. That's nine hours worth of time. I could be doing anything else. I do not want to watch a three hour. I just binge watch three hour movie to three hour movie. Now game of Thrones. I think I could definitely just binge watch a few episodes at a time and really hopefully get into it. It's just the Lord of the Rings movies weren't my thing. Game of Thrones. It's a little bit of a different. I'm just, but I probably will give it a shot down the road. I'll admit that much. But before we quick, take a quick timeout, because we got some more stuff to get to, including Championship Sunday predictions, we've got Cypress Bayou gift certificate. We're giving it away right now in our rewards club. It's free to join. You won't be spammed with a bunch of emails. You'll have the opportunity to enter to win free stuff, like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lesser Steakhouse or a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen at Cypress Bayou Casino Hotel. And you can only win by joining the 1037 Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com. I can't win it, but you sure as heck can. We're going to take a quick timeout, and we'll give the picks for the NFL Championship Games tomorrow night. 
And we'll be back after this on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. Numbers don't lie, because when you listen to Under the Dome with CD, your knowledge of sports increases by 141 and two-thirds percent. And they spell disaster for you as sacrifice. Now, let's get back to the genetic freak of sports talk on Acadiana's Sports Station, 103.7 The Game. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game and 103.7thegame.com. Hopefully have a great Saturday afternoon. And man, oh man, it's a it's a little bit of a bittersweet type of day. Because I've always enjoyed doing this segment. Because I go a lot of different ways and I've got so many games to choose from. It's a damn shame that this is the penultimate week. Next week we will take a week off. But it's the last week I'll be able to really predict more than one game in the NFL until next season. Without further ado, let's look at some of the big games in the league where they play for pay. And let's get things started off with the first game of the afternoon in 2.05 p.m., the Battle of the Bays. Because we've got the Buccaneers from Tampa Bay, Florida, making the trip up to frigid Lambeau Field right there in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You heard me right. The Green Bay Packers taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Green Bay currently Three-and-a-half-point favorites in the contest. Antonio Brown ruled out for the Sunday's ball game, and I cannot wait to see what's going to happen here because it feels intriguing enough that I'm sitting here right now inside the first South Farm Credit Studios to say I think we see Green Bay get a win, and I'm sorry to all those sports bettors out there. Three-and-a-half. I'm going to go 27-24. For the Green Bay Packers, late field goal seals the deal. I think it's going to be a game that's going to be one on the ground. That's going to be the big key there. You got Leonard Fournette absolutely being, as they call him, playoff Lenny. He has been really on another level this year. So I think he's going to be a big part of this ball game and a big part of this defense trying to stop the run game. Then we get to three-and-a-half-point favorites. I think it's a field goal difference. It's opened up as a four-point line. And it's crazy to see the line just shift this much closer. And it's not all because of, you know, not having Antonio Brown there. It's more because of the fact these are two extremely well-matched teams. It'd be a pick if this were a neutral site virtually. But I think we'd say right here, right now, give me the Green Bay Packers advancing to the Super Bowl and ending the tyranny that is Tom Brady. For another year. Please let this happen, universe. We the people need it. Then we get to the Buffalo Bills making their way up from cold and snowy and just absolutely dreary. Buffalo, New York, 
and head over to Kansas City. Casey Moe, fellas, and the ladies know how big of a game this one is. A lot of sport books have this as a three-point favorite, like Bet Online. I usually go more on the Bavada side of things. Currently, three-and-a-half-point line. Pat Mahomes, he cleared the concussion protocol. I think he'll be A-OK, ready to go. And I think I got to go with Kansas City Chiefs getting it done. It's going to be a touchdown difference. I think 31-24 is where it's at. Whoever puts up 30 points gets the win because these two are really good high-powered offenses. But the fact that it's in Kansas City is a huge advantage. You take away that wild-ass Bills Mafia like feel to it because when these two teams play, here we see the Buffalo Bills play inside that stadium with fans, it becomes another like level. It gets ramped up. But I put my money on Kansas City winning and covering. For what it's worth, those degenerate gamblers, I can't wait for some of the sports betting to actually happen. But the over-under for this ball game, the consensus is 54 and a half. I'd probably take the over on that, if ever so slightly. Because I think we see something big happen on the defensive side of the football that gets it over the edge of 54 and a half on that over-under. And it's very, very close to consensus. In fact, according to Odd Shark, which is usually where I go to look at all my odds for every matchup, the consensus is that Kansas City will win, Buffalo's going to cover, and the total will go under. I think this is going to be a game where Kansas City wins, covers, and the total goes over. On that end, and then we see Aaron Rodgers versus Pat Mahomes, the Kansas City Chiefs, in the Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, Florida. This is the way it's going to be. I would, I hope to God we don't see your boy Tom Brady back in another blinking Super Bowl. He's been to 15 championship games. Please do not let him into the Super Bowl, especially in Tampa. That will be the absolute worst Super Bowl of all time, my book. Because then it's pretty much going to be Tom Brady. And I'm glad Bill Vinovich's crew is on the AFC title game because Bill Vinovich would figure out a way to screw over the Packers and pretty much gift wrap a Super Bowl to Tampa Bay and Tom Brady so he can go out on top. That no good son of a you-know-what. It's a mess, and I hope we get to see Green Bay do what it needs to do. And I said it to a friend of mine. I don't I, I don't wish ill will on a lot of people, but after the way that game was, and I, I can't stand Tom Brady. In fact, when I saw Tom Brady during the post game on Fox, I just said to my TV, bleep you Tom Brady, because I can't stand the guy. I want to see a full blown like attack this guy. And when you hit him, hit him hard. Make sure that when he loses and he will. He never comes back. Send him out. That's all I'm going to end on that segment. Because I cannot stand Tom Brady. He's the poster child of the NFL. And we don't need him to have yet another Super Bowl championship. I'm sorry. Can't stand the guy. Can't win with him. Can't win without him. In my opinion, he can go to hell.
We're going to take a quick timeout. I'm going to get off my Tom Brady, I hate him kind of soapbox here, if you will. I want to get to some stuff involving the entire situation with those Houston Texans. And by God, there's a lot to unpack there. We'll talk about that and more. Well, there I got Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790. Join the program next. Most sports talk radio shows go up to 10 on the amp, but under the dome with CD goes one higher. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These guys to 11. Now back to the show that brings the heat on Acadiana Sports Station, 1037, the game. I have a, have a ton of respect for him, um, just who he is, how man he is. Um, and uh, and just you know his ability to lead and and you know and love and serve people and uh, and his attractive quality and and, um, and I think you know he's got a vision for for you know uh, how he wants an organization to go and you know that was the, the conversations that we had was just you know coming and joining you know kind of what you know what he saw as as the, the direction he wanted to take this thing and and so I'm just you know thankful to be a part of it. Welcome back to Under the Dome with CD right here on Acadiana Sports Station, 103.7 The Game, 103.7thegame.com. That was Josh McCown talking a little bit about Jack Easterby, who to me has been the invisible hand kind of ruining what's going on with this Houston Texans franchise. And now we're going to get to somebody who is definitely, probably has a little bit more of a pulse of what's going on in H-Town. That's my guy Chris Gordy on air on Sports Talk 790 out in H-Town. He's on the Twin Peaks hotline. Chris, what's going on, brother? Hey, what's going on, man? Never a uh, dull moment here in uh, Houston sports, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's an absolute understatement, Chris. It's been an absolute dumpster fire what's going on with the Houston Rockets. But I think the biggest one has been the Houston Texans. First off, what the hell is going on over there where it's like, I feel like to me, and I said it just a second ago, Jack is Jack Easterby the invisible hand that's single-handedly ruining this franchise? Yeah, and if your listeners haven't read it yet, if you're uh, sitting in a waiting room this week or you got you know about 20 minutes to kill, I'd encourage you to go pull up uh, the two Sports Illustrated articles that they wrote about this guy, Jack Easterby. It is the most amazing meteoric rise to a position of power for somebody who has no credentials for it. Look, normally I would I would celebrate this kind of thing. You know, you think of a guy like Eric Spolstra who. You know, he started as the film boy or the ball boy, and then uh, you know broke down film for years, and then became an NBA head coach, and now he's been very successful for a long time. But that's a great fun story. The Jack Easterby story is the story of a guy who was basically a guidance counselor slash uh, preacher slash chaplain who came up through the ranks of South Carolina athletics. Now, to his credit, everybody in South Carolina raves about him. This was about ten, fifteen years ago. He was at South Carolina working with their athletics. It's kind of a guy to, you know, if you had some issues, you went and talked to Jack. Or you weren't doing too well in school. Your girlfriend broke up with you. You go see Jack, and he'll pray with you and, you know, share a minute with you. And he used that position to climb into the New England Patriots organization as their team chaplain. And, again, Bill Belichick loved him. A lot of the players loved him because it was kind of, if you needed somebody to center you and go have a minute of prayer, you went and saw Jack Easterby. Well, Something happened where New England wasn't going to bring him back, and he saw an opportunity to jump into the Houston Texans 
uh, with Bill O'Brien, who, uh, you know, obviously Patriots connection there, but uh, comes over to the Texans and somehow, some way, starts moving up through the ranks all the way to the point that back in January, he was named Executive Vice President of Football Operations. Now, that is, from what I was told originally, what he was supposed to be doing in that role was everything from, you know, helping, uh, helping organize nutritional things, helping uh, organize the travel, and, you know, just all those typical things, uh, executive stuff that goes on behind the scenes with NFL teams. But somehow he's worked his way not only into roster management, where if you read the article, he was one of the brains behind trading DeAndre Hopkins out of the Houston Texans for a second-round pick, great move still. Um, you know, he was able to do that, and now he is the right-hand man of owner Cal McNair throughout the GM coaching search and the head coaching search. I mean, if you read the article, you find that the Texans had hired a, an outside search firm to find their next GM. They recommended uh, Omer Khan, who is the head of uh, one of the heads of the uh, uh, Steelers front office, and basically were negotiating a contract with him. And then here comes Jack Easterby in the midnight hour telling Cal, no, 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 I think I can get you Nick Casario from the Patriots. And lo and behold, they hired Nick Casario. And the search firm's going, well, you just paid us you know, $500,000 for nothing because he wasn't on our list. So it's just been one thing after another. And now here we are in a coaching search where, you know, it's, it, this whole thing has been a debacle with the Houston Texans this year. And now it seems like Jack Easterby is still in the ear of the owner, um, you know, kind of using his prayer to power, we call it, in that, you know, Cal is a very religious guy. I'm not saying anything against religion, but it's almost like this guy's a snake using the religion to his benefit to rise to power. It makes perfect sense. And the fact that, you know, you get a guy like Casario, a guy who was with the Patriots previously, that to me alone was a huge red flag. And it's like, you just basically, and I was also kind of inferring from different people that I follow, follow Houston sports a little bit more than I do, saying the fact that this move to get Nick Casario was 100% to save the hide of Easterby. Because I think anybody else worth their salt in that search firm probably would have hired somebody that would have been like, all right, first off, get rid of this goon. Yeah, and that's kind of like when you read the story on SI, you find that, you know, we knew, we knew this, but a year ago when the Texans were, you know, they moved on from Brian Gay, they brought him in for a year, and basically, if you read between the lines, Jack Easterby didn't like him, and Bill, Bill O'Brien was butting heads with him, and so they, they forced him out after just a year. And Jack Easterby, who was part of the Patriots group, goes back to uh, New England to Robert Kraft's house. They're having a big celebration, celebrating their Super Bowl win from, I guess it was two years ago, and... Uh, you know, they're giving out the rings and everything. Well, Jack Easterby goes and pulls Nick Casario aside and says, hey, i got a plan. We're going to bring you over as the as the GM. Well, the Patriots get wind of this, and they say, no, 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 that's tampering. You can't do that in a function that's for the Patriots. And so uh, the, the Texans got fined, and they had to pay a big fine. Well, it's just ironic that exactly a year later, here we are again, where Jack Easterby gets his guy in Nick Casario and, Look, Nick, Nick Casario could end up being a good GM for the Texans when it's all said and done. The problem is he's got the ear of Jack Easterby, and that's that's the problem with all this. Is every the more and more you read about this guy, he's a problem and he needs to go. Yet the most important two people in the organization, the owner and the GM, like him. Talk right now with Chris Gordy, Sports Talk seven ninety, and then we see more rumor in your window about what's going on with the Houston Texans and the head coaching search because they're the they've pretty much 
outside of the Atlanta Falcons, were the first ones to fire their head coach slash GM and Bill O'Brien, which was the right thing to do. Honestly, the right thing to have done is not let Bill O'Brien get that much power. I think we, we all kind of have learned coach GM never works out all that well, and Bill O'Brien was 100% a big mistake to do that. But it's amazing that they have set have all this time to do research and figure out who their guy could be, and now they're sitting on potentially Josh McCown and Jim Caldwell over a guy like Eric Bieniemy, who I think has been overlooked a billion times as a head coach. It feels like there is there dirt on Eric Bieniemy to a certain extent to where people aren't hiring him as a head coach. Yeah, so there's a few a few dynamics at play here. First off, two days ago, I was told the two finalists for the Texans are Eric Bieniemy, who's the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, and Wesley Frazier, who's the defensive coordinator for the uh, Buffalo Bills. And both those guys are coaching in the games tomorrow. So, uh, you know, if it's either of those guys, obviously they, they haven't announced yet because both those guys are still coaching. But uh, that's what I was told two days ago. And then this news leaks out yesterday that you know, Jim Caldwell was one of the guys we interviewed early on, and he's still very much in play. And then they interviewed uh, Josh McCown, the quarterback, a uh, veteran quarterback who's been a journeyman, and uh, and that kind of made everybody go, what? Like, Josh McCown? You know, it's very feels very Steve Nash getting hired by the Brooklyn Nets on a whim. But, um, you know, that was very surprising. But I, I think, at least as of right now, it's still going to be one of the enemy and, and Leslie Frazier. Now, to answer your question about Eric, the enemy, he interviewed for a lot of jobs last offseason. This, this season, it became – you know, kind of the mindset, at least the media narrative became Eric Bieniemy is the number one, uh, the number one head coaching candidate out there. Well, he interviews for just about every team and doesn't get hired. What I've been told is he does not interview well. Now, take that for what it is. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who don't interview well but do well at their jobs. But a lot of these, a lot of these owners, they're making a multi-million dollar investment. They have been turned off for whatever reason with the with Eric Bieniemy. So. Um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Rooney rule and, uh, you know, uh, there, there's been a big push this offseason to hire minority candidates. I remember hearing the Atlanta Falcons wanted to hire a black coach and a black GM. There, there's been a major push for Roger Goodell and the NFL brass to, hey, let's explore it. You know, the, the Rooney rule has kind of become a, a little bit of a joke. It's become, oh, well, let's interview two black coaches, and, and that's it. We did our due diligence. I mean, I think there's been an actual push by the NFL to put more minority candidates in positions of power. The problem is, what do you do if one of the minority candidates you interview is just not any good? Eric Bieniemy, that can also be true. And so that's where the optics get bad when people start pushing around the narrative, saying, oh, well, look at Eric Bieniemy, a black, head, black coach, and he can't get a head coaching job. Well, you know, Leslie Frazier and Jim Calder are both very much on the table for the Houston Texans. So it will be a bad look if Eric Bieniemy doesn't get a, get a head job, but I would say it would be an even worse look if the Texans hire a Josh McCown, a white quarterback who's never coached a day in his life. Oh no, exactly. And you know, like the rumor in your window, the stuff I've been reading is that if Josh McCown gets hired, Caldwell could very well be a package deal, and that's what really kind of infuriates me. It's like if you're going to hire him, like like if you're going to hire Caldwell, why not just make him the head coach and tell Josh McCown to go kick a bag of rocks? Yeah, it's stupid. But, I mean, as you heard the sound clip there, uh, Josh McCown raving about Jack Easterby. And, again, that Josh McCown known to be a very religious man of faith. Well, then, again, it makes sense that uh, they would bring him in. And, you know, there's there's ties there. So it's amazing how you just keep connecting the dots here. But when it's all said and done, 
the, the number one guy you need to keep happy is your franchise quarterback, the face of your team, Deshaun Watson. And, you know, early on they tell him he's going to be part of the search process. Now, we can get into an argument on whether, you know, you should include your, your, uh, you know, star player in a coaching search. Uh, I do a show with uh, former NFL player Andy Kalu here in Houston, and he has the mindset of no player should ever bring in, be brought in on front office decisions. But I tend to think, you know, look, if Jimmy Buss wanted to fire uh, Frank Vogel tomorrow, you don't think she's going to at least lob a phone call to LeBron James and say, hey, LeBron, here's what, we, here's what we're thinking. I think there's a group of about 20 athletes across all sports that you're going to make a, a, a head coach or, or, or rather a, a GM or head coach decision, you at least get your star player's input. Even if you're just listening to him, you close the door and you say, all right, we're not going to listen to anything he said. At least make him feel like he's part of the process. And that was what the Texans promised to Deshaun Watson. And now they've gone and done everything uh, Deshaun didn't didn't recommend, rather. And, uh, you know, it's it's turned into this cluster where now there's rumors that Deshaun may come out and, and officially demand a trade suit. Sorry now, Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790. And you bring up the fact that potentially he could wind up getting, you know, canned. He could very well be saying, hey, I'm, I want to get out of here. What do you th- which team do you think has the most capital? Because I was th- talking about this with a friend of mine last night, that you can very well be given, like, to be able to get to Sean Watson, you've got to break out the proverbial war chest to be able to pull this off. So which team do you think has the most capital to wind up getting somebody like Deshaun Watson in a big trade? I'll just start by saying this. The Texans are not trading Deshaun Watson. So that's, I'll just put that on the table okay. because I know it's, it's fun to speculate and all that, but they are not going to trade him. I mean, he's under contract. He just signed a huge contract extension a year ago at this time. Uh, he's the face of the franchise. He can kick and scream and pout and sit out all he wants. Guess what? When training camp comes, you're getting fined every day you don't show up. That's just how it goes. I know some people may not like it, but that's how the system works. You sign your contract. Uh, you're under contract for many years. The system is set up where you can go sit sit out and pout, but you're going to get fined every day you're out of training camp. So that said, if the Texans did want to entertain it, and, and I would at least take phone calls, right? There's, it doesn't cost you anything to exactly. take phone calls and entertain trades. To me, the Miami Dolphins and the Jets would be the most intriguing, and, and these are the two kind of big packages I've heard floated out there. One was Miami Dolphins where they would give up, Basically, they own the, the Texans' first and second round pick this year. The Dolphins would give us some combination of a first and a second this year, a first next year, and two attack of Iloa, who, small sample size, wasn't all that impressed with what we saw, but a lot of people still believe he can be a really good NFL quarterback. That's one package. And then the other one would be the Jets, which includes the number two pick in this year's draft. So, you know, granted, you won't be able to get Trevor Lawrence, but you could maybe get a Justin Fields or Zach Wilson and potentially they could throw in Sam Darnold, and you could kind of see what you have in him. Obviously, he's been in a bad situation there with the Jets. Maybe he could be better elsewhere. So in both those situations, you would include multiple future firsts as well. So that's, those are kind of the packages I've heard floated out there. But the, the, the tough part about it is uh, Deshaun Watson has a no-trade clause in his contract. So yeah. comes the, you know, who has the control here? Who has the power? The Texans say, you know what? We're, we're going to give in to your demands. We're going to trade you. We're trading you to the Jets. Deshaun Watson can step back and block and say, no, I don't want to go to the Jets. And then you kind of have a stalemate again. So that's where the tough part of it would be. You know, whereas the James Harden thing, the Rockets were saying, we're going to trade you wherever we can send you, whoever gives us the best package. James Harden had no say in where he got traded. He can put out there all he wants. Oh, I want to go to this team or this team, but 
um, ultimately with Deshaun, they couldn't just send him wherever, whoever gave him the best package. He would have to waive his no trade clause. Yeah, exactly. And I think when it comes down to it, if he if he doesn't like what's going on right now, and he could very well be seeing what we're seeing right now, he could say, hey, I want out. I think that's definitely the big thing. But I want to flip it over before I let you go to the Houston Astros because obviously I, mean, I saw something during the break a video tribute to George Springer, officially now with the Toronto Blue Jays. And I know you put out something on social media earlier in the week about him. What do you say about George Springer and the legacy that he is leaving with the Astros? And me and me and Jordy Holper got in a conversation about this the other day. Where does he rank amongst the all-time greats for you? Well, it, it really is amazing, Clint, when you look at the numbers. of We were doing this this week. Go look at the all-time great numbers in postseason play. And look, we're obviously going to give a pass for the 2017 uh, World Series team. Yes, did, did they cheat during the regular season? Yes, they did. To what extent did it help them? But this video is out there. I encourage people all the time. Go watch the videos that they put together, a collection of all the bangs, and watch the results of the, of the, uh, the at-bats. It's a lot of pop-outs, ground-outs, strikeouts. You know, Dallas Keuchel even came out later and said, you know, we stopped we stopped doing the sign stealing because it wasn't helping us. It was hurting us as much as it was helping us. And it was getting guys' heads, and they were striking out at the plate because they're thinking, oh, I thought this was coming, and it wasn't this. And so, anyway, say all that to say, when you look at some of the postseason leaders, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, and George Springer are, are in the top 10 or top 15 or most categories, you know, all-time postseason home runs, all-time postseason RBIs, all-time postseason hits. It's unbelievable that those guys are already – you know, among the greats, like Reggie Jackson. George Springer's name is among Reggie Jackson and some of the greatest players of all time because of how many times they've been to the postseason. Springer, you know, I, I tweeted out, I said, I think his numbers should be retired as an Astro. And some people would say, oh, you know, he only did it seven years, and Vigio and Bagwell did it their whole careers as Astros and all this. Well, you don't know. George may go to Toronto, have a good year, and then maybe two down years and get, get cut. Maybe the Astros swoop in and bring him back in for a swan song at the end of his career or something. But Ultimately, uh, I think he's right up there. Uh, you know, when we mentioned the Bagwells and Vigios and Berkmans, I think Springer should absolutely be in that category. He was as clutch of a postseason hitter as much as he was, you know, a really good leadoff man who could hit leadoff home runs. And he'll be missed. They're going to miss him. They're going to have to try to find out who's going to be their leadoff man now in addition to an extra uh, outfield spot. It's great that they brought Michael Brantley back, but. Yeah, George Springer will be considered one of the best, and Toronto has got a dangerous lineup without him in there. Who do you think will be the, you know, you brought it up just now, who do you think will be the the leadoff hitter? You know, Dusty Baker is old school. I mean, he wants he wants that guy who's going to get on base and, and, you know, potentially, we didn't see a lot of small ball in baseball this year at all, but I, I, they really like Miles Straw, who's who's an outfielder with a lot of wheels. He didn't get a lot of plate appearances this year. But if they end up starting Miles Straw with Kyle Tucker and Michael Brantley in the outfield, I could see Miles Straw, if he has a strong spring, I could see them batting him in the leadoff spot because Dusty wants to get that leadoff man on, you know, have your number two guy either bunt him, not bunt him over, but, not, you know, move him over and, and have your three and four guys drive that, that runner in. So if I had to guess today, I'd – if Miles Straw is starting, he would have a potential to lead off, but he's got to go out and have a really strong spring and chill because his bat was not very good in the last year. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, my man. We'll talk to you down the road. Enjoy the weekend. Awesome. You too, man. Thanks so much. All right, that was Chris Gordy, Sports Talk 790, does some midday work. Great guy. Can't wait to have him on down the road.
maybe once we get closer to the NFL draft, maybe we'll get him on. And more importantly, have a conversation about those Astros. One last take before we get out of here and go enjoy a good weekend and a fight weekend. Back after this, 1037 The Game, 1037thegame.com. Just before we close up shop here on 1037 The Game, the famous CD is looking to fire off one more take before dropping the mic. Is it going to be a hot one, or is it going to be one he'd like to take back six months down the road? Let's listen in and find out. Before we end the show, we got to talk about UFC 257 one more time. And for me, it's got to be Dustin, the Diamond Poirier, getting the win. I think it'll be a fight that goes the distance. He always talks about 25 minutes to greatness. This is going to be a star-making performance for him, win or lose. But give me, and I, I said it on Friday, I went with Connor, but I think it was just more because of just how I opinionated things. But I think John Eric Poli put me over the top. So give me Dustin Poirier getting the win and he has a chance to vie for that lightweight title one more time. And on that note, I'm out of here. I'll be back with you next week. Same time, same channel right here on 1037 The Game and 1037thegame.com. Looking back at the title games. Also starting to maybe look ahead to some college baseball, which I'm always down for. Also maybe some college softball too is i need to get my guy eric lopez back on the program before too long but trust me we're gonna get into some college baseball college softball maybe some college basketball i'll leave the pelicans to our guy louis prejean but me i'll stick to the meat and potatoes so ufc so make sure you just keep locked right here on 103.7 the game for next week's show same time 11 to 1 right here on 103.7 the game that's about it see you Wake up! The show's on! Oh yeah! Kick it!